afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Minority Reports Podcast and Digital Series. I am your host, Mona Shake. You guys, this is a very unusual because I usually have my episodes at like uh, in the evening. But because this is a special time for a special guest, I'm not going to keep you guys any further. We are running on Brown Standard Time. I just want you to know. Um, and it's totally cool because, hey, it's Friday. You know, so happy Friday, everyone. Um my guest today um, is a very special person. I actually met him, believe it or not, uh, telling jokes uh, in uh, New York quite a while ago. And uh, I got approached by him and he was like, hey, you should come out to London and do, uh, you know, do the show, do some jokes. And I was like, oh, man, I would love that. Next thing you know, he was like, you should come out to Portugal and tell some jokes. And I was like, oh, dude, I'm totally down uh, and just had the best time. He's literally one of the the nicest, kindest human beings I've ever met. And uh, and I'm very proud to say he's a fellow Pakistani. So very, very excited to bring him on. He has a fantastic company that he is a founder and CEO of called Unitas Communications. And it's a cross-cultural communications agency. And I'm going to bring him on to tell us some more. So please welcome my very talented friend, Dasar Ahmed. Dasar, welcome. Hey. 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 How are you, my friend? I'm very well, thanks. Uh, and thank you so much for, for having me on. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Oh, and my I'm sorry that we have to do it at this time, but it's already seven in the evening here. So that's uh, yeah. Listen, I understand it's Friday night. You got to get your tandoori chicken on. You got to get your biryani on. I get it, man. I will not take that away from you. Uh, Mudassar, you and I have known each other for a while now. Mm, yeah. And, yeah. You're in London. And um, what does it, tell me about, like, the first time we met, you were watching me at a comedy show in New York City, right? That's right. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, was, I was telling my, uh, my this mom jokes, and, uh, and then everybody was crying. I still have that video, actually. Right. Somebody right. made that video. Um, but what does it, I think uh, everything that you are doing and have been doing with Unitas, can you tell us a little bit more about Unitas Communications and how you even came up with it? No, absolutely. Um, you know, um, one of the reasons I came to see you was because I'm always interested in cross-cultural issues, right? Yeah. How do you tell jokes when you come from a different culture to a different culture when you're a melting pot in and of yourself? Yeah. And it's this cross-cultural understanding that, that led me to set up uh, my company yeah. um, because I wanted to be able to explain um, different cultures to each other. You know, and uh, comedy, of course, is a fantastic way to do that. You know, yeah. you sure. can take the piss out of people without them even realizing. Um, but also at the same time, you can inform, educate um, people about deeply complex issues. I do that in the in, in using a variety of different tools, um, mainly in the media, mainly in public affairs. And I, I founded the company about 12 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to tell stories, if you like, from the developing world to the developed world. And we wanted to break down barriers enable channels for business, enable channels for, you know, more mass media penetration and things like that. And uh, I, I, I did it because I wanted to bring people closer together. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And you started this how many years ago? About 12 years ago now. Yeah. 12. And yeah. I wonder, you were born and raised in London. So you are first generation British Pakistani. Yeah. Second generation, I think. Oh. Yeah. It depends. I think Americans. So you guys say first generation when, when 
when you're born, I see. Okay, yeah, in that case, I'm first generation, yeah. Right, so, and now where in Pakistan is your family from? My family is from a place called Rawalpindi, which is a twin city of a place called Islamabad, the capital. That's right, that's right. I, I have been to Rawalpindi. And right. have you, have, I mean, do you go to Pakistan often? What is that like for you? Yeah, I have an interesting love-hate relationship with Pakistan, you know. It's so complicated and it's so difficult to describe, oh, you know. I tell you, I, um, as a kid, we used to go every year. Yeah. Uh, then we stopped going for a while. Um, then I recently started going about 10 years ago. I think the last time I went was about maybe two years ago. Oh, uh, and going as an adult and as a kid, obviously, you see different things. But, you know, I have to tell you, I still get that sort of excitement when my plane lands in Pakistan. I can't describe it. It's so kind of weird, you know, there's this strange excitement. And then, um, so I, um, you know, I now go for professional reasons. So I go for work and I, I meet a lot of people in the work context. I don't think I could live there. It would drive me crazy. But um, I, I, I think I would go often in Pakistan. Now. Recently, I had an incredible experience where I went up north and uh, went to some incredibly beautiful and stunning places. Yeah. That, that are off the beaten path and uh, spent a few weeks there and I really enjoyed it. So yeah, it's interesting love-hate relationship. Um, I um, I find that the best thing to do with your relatives there is just not talk about religion or politics. That's it. Those yeah, are the two things you stay away from. You don't not talk about that stuff. No, yeah. they're going to love you. You know, simple as that. I mean, Mudassar, do you experience this when you go back uh, where uh, they, they tell you or relatives tell you, oh, my God, your Urdu is still really good. Wow, you're still like Pakistani. <laughs> well, I have to admit my Urdu has deteriorated. But, yeah, <laughs> they are, but I can understand everything and I can speak it fairly well. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, they, yeah. they are surprised and it sometimes catches them out. You know, it's so funny. I, uh, the last time I went to Pakistan was almost 14 years ago. Uh, yeah, it's been a while. Where is your family from? Uh, Karachi. I'm, I was born and raised in Karachi. Right. right. Yeah, I moved to New York when I was 15. Um, yeah, I moved to New York when I was 15. But, um, the last time I went was in 2006 because my father uh, passed away. And it was yeah. just, I think it was just very traumatic for me to be there, all these memories flooding up me, going to the house that I was born and raised in. I think, I think it really, I think it really fucked with my head. And yeah. I was just like, oh man, I can't like, we can't go back. It's just too much trauma. And I think maybe that's why I'm just kind of not back. And do I miss it? Yeah, I miss certain aspects of Pakistan. I think I agree with you. I think it's just, you have this kind of connection, right? It's like, uh, it's like no matter how messed up your parents could be, you still have that bond and it's that channel. Yeah. yeah, I feel very lucky that my father made a very strong effort for yeah. us to be brought up very cognizant of Pakistani culture. Mm -hmm. You know, so I feel very lucky that I was able to relate to the art, the music, the poetry, and I still draw upon it today, you know, mm -hmm. and that I feel very, very privileged to be able to do that. Many yeah. people weren't able to do that. So I yeah. definitely feel very lucky about that. What is, there, is this a thing um, for you? Oh, I, I want to tell you the story. So last time I went, my my bubble, my dad's uh, older sister. So I was always a, I was always a pretty dark skinned child, right? And in Pakistan, like Karachi, really hot. And um, why is there an echo? There is an echo here somewhere. Do you hear an echo? Slight one. Let me try muting at my end. When when. You... 
I don't know why there's an echo. How's this? Well, I don't want you to be muted because I want to hear you. <laughs> there you are. Okay, I, I guess it comes with those. Um, my aunt looked at me and she was like, oh my God, even in America, all the time, you're still so dark. I thought you were going to be light skinned living in America. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> when you live in colder regions, it makes you light skin. There's so much colorism in our culture. Fair skin is beautiful and dark skin is not. Even though you can look like the hunchback of Notre Dame, but as long as you have fair skin, you're beautiful. I mean, it's just stupid. It's just stupid. Uh, and I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, do you know they have tanning salons that look like us? She's like, what? I was like, yeah, they're trying to look like us and we're trying to look like them. For God's sake, stop it. Um, but it was really, it was really fascinating. Yes. Yeah. And she was just like, why, why aren't you, why aren't you white yet? Why aren't you white yet? And I was like, uh, what? Uh, that's ridiculous. But that's when you were growing up in London, was there, I know, I know that the, 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 the South Asian, or as you like guys like to call it, Asian culture in, in England is pretty different than the South Asian culture in the U.S. Did you kind of, what was that kind of growing up for you, you know, when you weren't really kind of had that permission, it wasn't so readily acceptable to be like, I'm Pakistani, like to or my Pakistani roots. Like you weren't kind of maybe allowed to kind of have have pride what was that like for you? That was really interesting. I mean, you know, paradoxically, um, you know, I, I kind of just about missed the worst bit of that, you know, growing up. But I, I grew up in, a, in an area that, so that they see the, the kind of Pakistani community in the UK is far more condensed, you know, far, they, they live closer together in neighborhoods. In, in LA and in America, it's very spread out, except for New York and maybe Chicago, but sure. other places are very spread out, so yeah. so it's not so connected. But, you know, in the where I grew up, for instance, walking back from the subway, I'd walk past three mosques, and it was a 10-minute walk to my house. Wow. Yeah, and like three halal butcher shops and God knows how many aunties on the way, you know, which made coming back home from night outs quite difficult. But, um, but the point is that it was... Always Can't a bring a girlfriend around with us. Girlfriends Sorry? around. Can't bring a girlfriend around. That's out. I don't know what that means. I don't know what you're talking <laughs> But um, it was a very interesting uh, culture and a very different time, you know. But but um, at the so but I also felt that um, there was a very strong counter movement for people to keep that culture alive, you know. So, so normally minorities tend to hold on to the culture stronger you know, because they feel like they're losing their identity and this sort of thing. So you found a lot of that where I was growing up. So there were Pakistani associations, there were Muslim associations. You know, during Ramadan, everybody went to the mosque all the time. There was a very strong community. Now, this has its upsides and its downsides, right? I mean, the upside for me were, I mean, I remember, oh, my God, like every week there was like, food coming, people were just sharing food all the time. And when it was like religious holidays, you know, everybody would come and give you food, the same type of food, but doesn't matter, you know, whatever. And during Ramadan, yeah. you, you would have literally every day, somebody would be sending food and that was really nice, you know? And yeah. then of course, the other thing that you found growing up at, at, at our culture was, I remember when my father died, I was very young. 
I was about 15 or something. Oh, when, I'm sorry, Professor. That's very nice. It's okay. But when my when my father died, he died in the hospital. We called someone at home. Uh, so we called someone to let them know. We were driving back from the hospital. It was about an hour's drive. When yeah. we got home, there were like a million people in our house, you know, sorting everything out. The sofas had been moved to the side. You know, food was there, cleaned up. Everybody. That's community. Wow. You know, that's community. Wow. And I kind of... Now, obviously, I grew up, I did well, you know, I moved out, you know, now I live in a neighborhood that's more white than anything else, you know, yeah. um, and there's very few brown, I mean, there are brown people, but very few, it's more of a professional area. Yeah. I miss, you know, I miss that, and I, I kind of miss that, you know, even though I didn't engage with it so much when I was there, and maybe I didn't appreciate it as much, the older you get, the more you crave community. Genuine community for good warts and all, you know. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Well, but that's you can always you can always move back in those communities. So. Oh well, uh, you see, no, I don't know. I said <laughs> the downsides as well, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's, it's yeah. like that. Is that it's that interesting balance? You know that that's that's interesting. You said that because in uh, Texas, in Dallas, and in Houston, we have massive. Uh, Asian population. Oh, did you mute? Oh, yeah. Uh, we have massive populations, and um, and it's very much that. It's very much this sense of community there. Um, I really didn't kind of grow up with it. It's um, I kind of grew up with this a little bit, but not really. Uh, we just always kind of just kind of lived in places that were not really very South Asian heavy. You know, we just kind of did our own kind of a thing. But I mean, you grew up in that, and then. Would you say that because you grew up in that environment, it really kind of influenced for you to be like, you know what, I want to come up with something. I want to do the kind of work where there is cross-culture. Do you think that played a role for you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, 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 100%. Like growing up, um, I grew up at a time where anti-immigrant sentiment, um, anti-Pakistani sentiment and anti-Muslim sentiment was very high. And I remember seeing so much crap in the media all the time. And I started off very young trying to rectify that crap, you know? I mean, I've, I've you know, most of my life, you know, growing up, going through, through high school, through college, was rectifying rubbish things out there, you know? Um, lazy assumptions, yeah. you know, targeted racism, um, and also coloring us all in the same brush, you know? Yeah. We're such a diverse group of people. We have conservative to liberal to all sorts, and we, we're happy. We come from countries that have had long liberal traditions, mm -hmm. countries that have had long conservative traditions, you know, and we're figuring it out. But to, to portray us all as one type of people That's was right. something I've been fighting my whole life. And then I guess it just I ended up working in the media for a while, and then from there it seemed like a natural thing to end up doing the work that I do now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, those are, what are some of the personal things you experienced and experienced in London? I mean, like, I've seen, uh, I've seen a, a lot of, uh, I guess, British TV shows where, you know, um, I know that, you know, there's the P word. I know for you guys, it's a pretty bad word. You know, uh, I, I, I wouldn't say it's the equivalent of the N word, but it's kind of up there with it because it's a very demeaning word that is used against uh, Pakistanis. What was that? I mean, you live, so, you you know, uh, did you kind of experience this? Because I did. This kind of identity crisis of where you're just like, okay, I live here, but I also have to go out and assimilate in British culture. 
right? And also British, but I'm also Pakistani. So, you know, that's kind of finding your footing and trying to find that balance. Because when you come home, you have to be this good Muslim Pakistani boy. But when you go outside, you are Pakistani's part of the identity, but you're also British and you also have to assimilate. What was that like for you? Interesting question. Um, I tried not to think about it <laughs> too, you know, too much, you know, I just, just tried to be myself in both places, you know, um, of course I experienced racism as well growing up. I'm, I think that certain doors, do, I mean, look, you asked me about my company. Yeah. yeah. I, I started my company partly uh -huh. before I, uh, because I couldn't get an internship in a PR company. You couldn't get an internship where? In any PR company. Wow. I applied to so many. And at the time, they would ask me about my background, the school I went to, you know, my religious whatever. And I felt shut out. And actually, there is a big movement in the UK now about rectifying racism within media and the PR. The PR industry many was worse than, than the media, you know. And I remember... I applied to about five internships and I was like, screw this. I'm going to set my own firm up. And now we're one of the leading firms of its kind. And I'm very happy I did that. Wow. Actually, really interesting is that when traditional doors are shut for migrants, mm -hmm. they just create their own space sometimes. That's right. you know? So this is why, or they fall into a depressive cycle. You understand? Mm -hmm. Right. And I was determined not to be that guy. Mm -hmm. I was determined not to be that bitter guy. Look, you get busy living, you get busy dying. You know, at the end of the day, if people, if one door closes, you have to hustle and find another door and open it. Yeah. And I could sit here and complain about racism and complain about. And the truth is that um, when I decided that I wasn't going to be a victim, what I found was that actually there were just as many people in British society that wanted to help me succeed. Sure. You know? So, you know, I, my first in my my first investor was a traditional white guy, you know, uh, my other, in fact, all three of my investors were not Pakistani, they were not Muslim. So actually, I think it's all about your attitude and the way you you think, you know, and yeah. if you if, if you um, do not fall into victim mentality, you keep pushing yourself, you know, the universe opens doors for you. I, I don't think I could have agreed anymore. And this is, I, I think this is why I've always liked you. This is it. This is right, that right here. You know, I don't think we've ever actually had a chance, opportunity to verbalize this to each other, but I've always felt that about you, right? I mean, I think for me, it was the same thing. It's like, let's not be a victim. It's like, okay, well, you, you're, listen, even, even with whatever racism and whatever prejudice we've experienced, we're still in, sit, sit in a more privileged position than Pakistanis possibly even back home. Right, we live in a we sit in a privileged position. Like we have opportunities and access to things that people back in Pakistan probably would never have access to. Right, so why sit here and just victimize ourselves? Where you're just like, no, I can actually make stuff happen. Like this is, yeah, I can make stuff happen. Um, I mean, when you started your PR company, was it just you? Did you have uh, another partner with you? You were like, no, I. I, I was so it's really again interesting story. I started with my, um, I started the company with my best friend from high school. As a friend of mine who I met when I was eleven. White guy? No, 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 white guy. His name is Shiraz. He's, he's you know him. I do know Shiraz. I didn't yeah. know that's how you guys knew each other. Yeah, we met uh, because 
He, my surname is Ahmed with an E, and his surname was Ahmed with an A, and we were next to each other in the register. Oh. So, um, so we've been friends since the age of 11, and we had different paths coming out of college, right? So I ended up working in the media, working with broadcast stations, things like that. And he ended up working in policy, and he ended up living in, in the Czech Republic and Vienna, working in like policy think tanks, that kind of stuff. And we were both around... Was it 26, 27, something like that, you know? And we, we'd had a few years behind us. And, um, you know, he was facing some of the same obstacles as me. Yeah. Um, and we both had a very similar vision that we wanted to, you know, tell cross-cultural communications. And, you know, we wanted to work for interesting organizations. And, you know, we were lucky enough to find someone to believe in our vision. And here we are. That is... I did not know that... <laughs> I love Shiraz. Shiraz is just good people, just like you are. And you guys, you guys to me are like a package deal. Like, so when I met you, I met Shiraz and I was like, oh man, you guys are just like the nicest, sweetest guys ever. Um, which is, uh, well, you know, which hasn't been my most experience with Pakistani guys, but you guys definitely changed that perception for me. A great deal. So thank you for doing that. Um, but yeah, Shiraz and you guys are an absolutely fantastic team. He's, he's just such a lovely human being. He really is. I mean, you guys with your cross-cultural PR company that you guys started, did you guys started approaching what you you know, what, what was like your first kind you were like, you know, what are the companies do you guys were looking to target first? before. Anyway. Oh, it was really interesting. Our, our first actual proper client, uh, we did a couple of small community contracts, you know, but our first actual major client was the Arab League, which is this intergovernmental body. So interesting. I was young and I met the ambassador at a diplomatic reception in parliament. And I was like, look, we do PR, you know, and uh, we were young, you know, wet behind the ears, you know? Yeah. And, to be honest with you, I probably wouldn't have hired me. Wait, sorry, Mudassar. What does that mean, wet behind the ears? I don't know what that means. Uh, it means like we were just inexperienced, young, you know, maybe a bit uncouth. I don't want to say uncouth, but maybe not so sophisticated, you know? Is that coming out of the womb, for example? What is that? Like wet behind the ears? Were you swimming? Why are you wet behind the ears? Oh, it, it's an English saying. It, it, it means that you're sort of young and you're not dry your ears. <laughs> I'm going to have to send you a link on that where that saying comes from. But we use it to mean that when someone is not experienced, you know, Got when it. They're not, maybe when they're not so sophisticated, you know. Got it. Um, so we um, we uh, pitched to the Arab League ambassador here to Lon in London. And, um, you know, somehow he liked us and we got lucky. He yeah. hired us. And yeah. then within a year, we also signed up with the UN and yeah, it just rocketed from there, you know? Wow, wow. We work with, um, you know, we work with the three major intergovernmental bodies in the world, the UN, the Arab League, the OIC, and the UN World Tourism Organization. We work with several governments, um, several high net worth individuals, wow. you know, where, yeah. So we've come a long way. It's not fancy at all with us. We're not fancy <laughs> in the slightest. Uh, what, what is that like with us, sir? Like when you uh, sit down with like somebody like the Arab League, uh, are they, the Arab League, are they mo mostly made, made up of Khaliji countries? Like what is the Arab League made up of? No, it's, it's uh, I think it's 22 states, but it's all the Arab, uh, so everything from Iraq, um, Jordan, all the way to Morocco and yeah. the Khaliji states. 
Um, they have they they're not such a. I mean, it's sort of led by Egypt in a way. So they're not a, they're not particularly active. They were more active back then. They still exist, but but they're not so um, cohesive as they once were. I think they'll be the first to admit it. Um, but back then they were very. They, they they have a mission here. They have an they have ambassadors all over the place, and they just wanted to be better known. You know, for their work and for their policy positions, and our job was to to enable that, to to help people better understand what they did, what they stood for, the right kind of people, you know, uh, heard from them, and also the media heard from them, and also the right politicians heard from them. So yeah, that yeah. was the initial, initial gig. How how is it that Pakistan hasn't hired you guys? Well, we have, yeah. Well, <laughs> long story, you know. So Pakistan needs good PR. Well, it does need to be, we've worked for Pakistan. Uh, well, well, okay, we haven't worked for Pakistan, but I, I, re we represented the largest NGO in Pakistan. Okay. By far, yeah. So it's called RSPN. It's by far the biggest NGO in Pakistan. It's a, it's huge, you know. So they have, you know, they own banks, they own textile mills, they own colleges, they oh, own wow. power projects and dams, and they're the they're the single largest recipient of EU funding anywhere in the world. I think the EU gives them like, I think 400 million euros a year. Like they're absolutely massive. And people didn't know about them, you know? And people still don't know about them, you know? But anyway, um, oh shit, I probably shouldn't say that. But um, so they hired us and we did a lot of work with them. And then like, I, I don't know if this is a Pakistani move, but they were like, oh yeah, you know, we can't afford you guys. But hey, Mudassar, join our board. <laughs> so now I'm a board member. Okay. Um, you know, but that's okay. You know, it's fun, but it's very rewarding. And I've traveled all over Pakistan with them. Amazing. Yeah, they're massive in Sindh. I did a lot of work in Sindh, Upper Sindh. You know, on the uh, um, so they're an incredible organization. Um, so that's the only bit um in Pakistan. You know, we yeah we're open to it. It's just never never worked out. Interesting. That's interesting. Uh, they don't have budget for it. it they got four hundred million dollars from the EU. Oh, you're talking about RSPN? Yeah, but all that money has to be spent on, like, you know, poor people or, you know, or building stuff or whatever, you know? So. Right, right, right. But those are, um, just to kind of sidetrack on the Pakistani government. So you, you talk about this largest NGO, RSPN, they get funded by the EU, uh, they get $400 million a year. The Pakistani government is uh, the history of Pakistani government has been complex to say the least. It always has been. Um, these NGOs go out there and do all this work. I mean, the the Pakistani government, man. How many thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I um, so you know, I've met Imran Khan several times, and actually, I should have said I've hosted him in London many mm -hmm. times, you know, a few times, and yeah. You know, I, every time I go to Pakistan, I try to see him. Can you tell who Imran Khan is? Some people who don't know the listeners who are the Prime Minister of Pakistan. Current Prime Minister. Current, current Prime Minister of Pakistan. Look, there's a really good book called Pakistan: A Hard Country by Anatole Levin. You know, where he talks about Pakistan is just an incredibly hard country yeah. to manage. It's first of all, it's huge. Yeah. Secondly, it has an oversized population. Thirdly, yeah. it's largely still illiterate. Yes. You know. Um, and there are so many different um, tribes and religions and, and, you know, religious interpretations and, you know, tearing it apart. And then on top of that, 
Um, it has always been a proxy for major powers. You know, the Americans were, you know, knee deep in Pakistan trying to get rid of the Soviets in Afghanistan. Now the Chinese are basically have this huge, uh, I think Pakistan is the single largest recipient of Chinese aid anywhere in the world. Really? Um, with the, with the uh, investment, in any case, with the CPEC, uh, That's right. you know, uh, project. So Pakistan's always been kind of buffeted between major powers, you know, and just been a very difficult country to run. I wouldn't want to run it. So it'll drive anyone crazy. It's a miracle the country still exists. You know, I'm um, shocked with us, sir, how Pakistan even functions. How Pakistan what? It even functions. It even operates. Like people get up. I mean, Pakistan is this incredible mix of the war between the mullahs and the intellectuals. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. have brilliant people in Pakistan, and then you have these mullahs and the religious zealots who are constantly fighting for power, and yeah. it's like this constant back and forth. And uh, we just can't seem to find peace. Like, it's always, I honestly, Mudassar, I really believe, and this is not just for Pakistan, predominantly Muslim countries must separate uh, religion and state, period. Period. Freedom of speech, freedom of, you know, press, uh, and separation of religion. Let's just start there. Everything else, but those are the three I feel will cause the most chaos and the most unrest. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, the history of religion in politics has always been messy, especially, you know, especially in places like Pakistan. You can see that, you know, and, um, you know, a, a lot of people will um, attack you for calling for the separation of religion and state in Pakistan, but they forget that. For decades of Islamic history, this was always the case, you know, um, and, um, you know, it's uh, in a place like Pakistan, it just leads to a recipe for disaster, you know, and to yeah. be fair, in Pakistan, the religious parties have never been, you know, fully in power, you know, but they have a huge influence, you know, like the yeah. current like, PTI is not a religious party, you know, it, right. it, it won't claim to be the PPP isn't, PML isn't, you know, right. but um, I think Pakistan has just... I mean, it's a miracle exists, you know, and I'm always, and the Pakistani people are very resilient, very, incredibly resilient. so resilient, you know, so brave and so resilient and uh, God bless them, you know, yeah. but it's a tough I, place to be. Honestly, I, um, you know, I even go back to, sometimes I think about my father, how he established his business in Pakistan and um, our family, uh, kind of made their name and made their money by becoming the uh, largest uh, driving institutes in Karachi. So all the driving institutes, that's our family business, like my uncles and my dad, and they all dominated the business. Um, and I look at, I, I sometimes sit down and I think about my father. It's like, how the fuck did you let me, how did you manage to like navigate your way and make money and then have the foresight to send your children to America, having like the to dare to go out to America? Like it blows my mind, Mudassar. It blows my mind. Like your father, what did he do in Pakistan? Like what was what did he do before he decided to move the family to London? He oh good question. I believe that he worked for the government. Um, he was, uh, he used to work, um, there was a huge dam built in Pakistan and he was a, I want to say he was a procurement officer or something like that. I mean, he was a civil servant, um, but he had this sense of adventure um, and he always wanted to get out. 
I, I think he was doing all right. You know, he was an educated, you know, master's level kind of, and he was in the civil service stream, whatever you call it. Mm-hmm. But he just, wanted to, he just wanted to get out, you know. He yeah. wanted to be in Europe, you know. Yeah. Yeah. How, did your, did, how did your father end up in America then? My father never ended up in America. My father had a big business. And uh, the reason we ended up in America is because I have four older brothers. I'm the youngest and the only girl. And my two brothers, my second and my third brother, were given expired vaccination for polio and they got polio because of it. And that's why we came to the U.S. is because my mom would write letters to hospitals around the world saying, I have two sick kids that have polio and there's no treatment for them. Uh, and then kind of through the reference of my mom, one of my mom's cousin was a doctor in Boston and, uh, and said, Hey, you know, uh, my mom wrote a letter with the help of her cousin because my mom got married off at 17. She didn't speak English. Uh, she wasn't, you know, fluent in writing English whatsoever. Sat down with a cousin who did speak English and wrote a letter and be like, listen, I have two sick children. They need help. Uh, we don't know what to do. Uh, and then the cousin in Boston was like, hey, I know a hospital in Lexington, Kentucky, and they take care of international children who have, who are, you know, who have problems. And then my mom wrote a let, that letter got forwarded to Shriners Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky. Shout out to Shriners Hospital. Thank you. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Um, and they're the ones who said, oh, you know what? Uh, we read your story, and I'm sorry this happened to you. If you guys just fly yourself out here, we'll pay for everything. Wow. And that's how we started coming to the U.S. And so then my never moved to the U.S. Oh, he always stayed in Karachi. They always stayed in Karachi, and they sent us here, got us settled, and just went back. Uh, back and forth, presumably. Back and forth, yeah. My father never wanted to live in America. He was a diehard Pakistani. Like, diehard. He was like, I am, you know, I am a Pakistani I am, you know, this is my country and I am not leaving. Like, this is it. I'll come visit you guys, but I am not living in America. I am living in Pakistan. I think for my father, there was also this thing that because he had such established business in Pakistan, he couldn't imagine, like, in his 40s and his 50s to be like, I'm going to uproot myself and then go do these weird odd jobs in America. Like, you know, what, be a, like, deliver pizzas? Like, what am I going to do? Like, be a driver, a taxi driver? Like, what am I going to do? So, Mona, how comes you didn't go into the family business then? I did want to go into the family business. And my father, when he passed, you know, when my father was alive, I asked him. And I was, I called him one day and I was like, would you like me to come back and help run the family business? Because my brothers didn't want to do it. And my father was like, I'm not going to ask my daughter to come and run the family business. Like, that happen you know so you just kind of my father's plan hilarious with us he was like oh you guys are going to go to america right you guys are going to become a panel of five doctors miraculously (laughs) this miracle from god is going to come down it's going to make you this panel of five doctors then you guys are going to come back to pakistan i'm going to help open like this ginormous hospital and you guys are going to run that as a family business listen listen yeah, I was like, Dad, I've heard yeah. a lot of. I mean, I've heard a lot of. Did you guys become doctors then? Uh, what do you think, Vanessa? <laughs> I don't know. Actually, could have. No. <laughs> Hell no! None of us wanted right. to become doctors. Right. We wanted. Yeah. Not, first of all, going to med school is so expensive in America. Like right. you're looking at upwards of one hundred fifty, two hundred thousand dollars each. Right. My father had money, but not that kind of money. 
Like yeah. we were gonna, we were like these poor immigrant children living in a one bedroom basement apartment in the middle of Jersey city, for God's sake. How the hell were we gonna go to med school? You know, I wasn't yeah. gonna go to med school. You know, I, 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 sl I, sl I sling dirty jokes on stage for a living now, man. Come on, you know, what a vast difference that is from becoming a doctor. I had never did no desire. My, my parents used to be like, you are gonna grow up to be doctor this and doctor that. And I'm like, uh, man, become a doctor. You know, that was like the thing. What did your parents have kind of expectations of you? What did they want you to become? Doctor? Yeah, I, think, I think my, I, I, I mean, my parents, you know, bless them. My parents were always very sort of accepting of my whims, you know, in that way. But wow. my, um, but my dad would, would have liked me to have become a lawyer. Lawyer. Okay. Yeah. I think he would have liked me to have become a lawyer, but you know, but uh, they didn't. They, they wasn't, I didn't have that pressure. I know a lot of Asian families, you know, yeah. the parents really try to dictate their career choices. And I was very lucky that, that I didn't have that, you know. You just and, got lucky. You got lucky with us. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think partly I got lucky. Uh, partly my father died when I was very young. Mm -hmm. Maybe mm. different had he, had he stayed alive. Yeah. But he certainly gave me a good grounding in life, you know. Yeah. So. I mean, the education that he imparted to me when he was alive, beyond you know going to school, was, was very useful to the man yeah. I am. You know, yeah, your, was your father and were your parents the kind of people who were like sit down at dinner table and be like, "How was your day? Tell me what did you learn in school? Were they like that? What were they like?" Well, um, they were. What they were like was, "Hey, welcome back from school. Now let's start the Urdu curriculum." Oh wow! Those kind of parents. So we we followed the Urdu curriculum from the age of like six to like fourteen mm -hmm. every single day at home. Wow! Wow! <laughs> I mean, wow! That's uh, that's pretty intense. So wait, who's teaching this? Your mom is. Who's teaching you? Uh, both mom and dad. Both. Wow. Yeah. So they they had us, um, you know, so I can write, I can read, I can uh, understand, comprehend. You know, I'm, I'm losing it now a lot, but, you know, I was following. We, they, they would order these textbooks from Pakistan, mm -hmm. you know, and we would, we would sit down and we would follow the curriculum all the way through, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So they really put a lot of effort in. Um, and um, my dad was a very good mathematician, so he would, and I mean, you know, he would spend a lot of effort teaching me maths. I just never got it. I just, it, maths wasn't me, you know. So um, they were those kind of parents. So they put a lot of effort. And my dad was obsessed about us retaining our culture, you know. Mm. So he'd take it to Pakistan every year. Yeah. He um, he ensured, you know, he ensured that we were part of the community and went to all the community events. Yeah. And like that. And I guess it paid off. I guess yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Was, was there a lot of pressure to learn things about Islam and read the Quran? And like, was that like a pressure thing for you guys? What was that like? Do you know a little? Yeah, uh, I mean, because um, like most Desi, the most Muslim Desi kids, we were grown up. You know, we were we were uh, brought up learning the Quran. You know, mm -hmm. and um, I was sent to the mosque, and I hated it. So then I started. You know, I stopped going, and we were taught at home. Why did you hate him, Mudassar? Oh man, the, the the imam was a bully. He would. Why are they like that, Mudassar? Why are they oh, like that? Man. Don't get me started on this. You know, I just started a company. Oh, no, I want you to get started, Mudassar. Hey, I want you to get started. I don't know if you saw. I just started a company that brings imams 
you know, vetted imams to people. Oh, no. What is the company? You tell yeah, It's called Imam Connect. It's an online portal okay. that gives you vetted, verified, and background checked imams to do anything you want. To, to teach you Islam, to, you know, uh, do nikahs, to do marriage ceremonies, to, to help you with funerals, whatever you need. So, uh, because this is a big problem that a lot of imams are not background vetted, checked, whatever. So it's actually a it's done pretty well already. It's um, we've been had some massive media coverage, and it's www.imamconnect.com. I love I it. This is great. Well, that's a, how do you vet them? Like, what is the how do you vet these imams? We have a three level vetting system for imams. We have basic, which means identity verification. We have intermediate, which means identity verification plus qualification check. And we have advanced, which is identity verification, qualification check, and police check. Wow. So, yeah, we have a fully fully integrated system of vetting imams. Uh -huh. And uh, it's like a virtual mosque. So many of us, you know, we have complicated uh, relationships with our religion. But many people don't completely drop off. Like, they'd still, if they got married, they'd want a nikah. You know, they might, you never know when you need an imam. Or also your faith when it goes up or down, right? Yeah. So we don't know where to go in a circumstance like that because many people don't go to the mosque anymore. So I wanted to create a place online where you can go and somebody can meet you where you're at. They're yeah. verified, they're understanding, and yeah. they will teach you whatever you want or, or provide any service that you want. And are they are they all based in Britain or where are they? Oh, all over. America, Canada, Britain, South Africa, you know. <laughs> Do you have so, female moms? Yes, we do. Loads. Yeah. Yo, this is just so cool with us. Sir. This is so cool. The BBC covered us and did a massive segment on us. I need to check this out. I did not do my homework on that. I apologize. I need to definitely research that. Uh, that that sounds amazing. Professor, you know, uh, this whole thing, do you think, do you also have uh, moms from Pakistan and other places too? No, not, not yet. Not yet. Um, maybe we will later on, right? I mean, of course, we have imams of Pakistani descent, you know, or Pakistan is living in the West, but not uh, Muslim majority countries just yet. Uh, it's kind of like aimed at Western Muslims for now. Yeah. And, and it's aimed mainly at the unmosked people, people that, you know, don't have a regular mosque that they go to, but need Islamic services once in a while, you know. Yeah. So it's aimed at that class of people, basically. Right, 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 right. Absolutely. No, that's 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 really wonderful. That's really yeah. That's really amazing. Well, that's it. Do they do? Do they? Do you guys have imams that do like uh, different people of different religions who want to get married, or they're like, no, you have to convert, kind of thing. I I don't. I wouldn't know about that. You'd have to ask the imams on the platform. So we have a. You know, you can ask them a question. You can you know engage with them. You know, and I I think it depends on the imam. But I can tell you that we have from liberal to conservative. We have. Some, you know, lots of liberal imams, lots of conservative imams. And it entirely depends on what you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, liberal imams and then conservative imams. There we go. You know, I mean, because imams don't have to all be one type. That's true. That is true. That is very true. And they could be Sunnis, they could be Shias, they could be... Have everything on the platform. They could be everything. They could yeah. be absolutely everything. Uh, that, that is amazing, Gudasa. Good for you. Congratulations. That, that sounds really wonderful. That sounds really, really wonderful. Well, that's so what, I mean, now with the pandemic and everything like that, how has that affected your business? Well, um, we've actually done okay. We've been very busy, you know. We've, um, in fact, we've picked up some clients during the pandemic. Um, and we're coming out of this strong. I mean, 
I think short to medium term we're we're going to be okay because we we had we had existing relationships you know that go back years you know and many of our clients are repeat business um so we've done we've done fine who knows what the long term holds you know um you know if these people in turn have their budgets cut because yeah. of the long term economic ramifications maybe it'll affect us but certainly in the short to medium term i don't see that happening yeah um, in fact we're um we're turning away requests you know wow so yeah, it touch wood we've been okay you know thank god thank god that's wonderful that's what you guys have uh, in london have a pakistani mayor which is a very mm-hmm. um he's still current mayor yes he is yes 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 yeah. yes how has he been for london well it depends who you talk to really um i mean he's inherited a very difficult situation now with the pandemic um and um you know it's um people are complaining about the price of transport uh he's put up the congestion charge fees um you know and he's done a number of things so it's a mixed bag really you know um and i think fundamentally um the, the you know his election was delayed by a year so he's going to have to get reelected again next year and um you i got delayed the election for because of the pandemic No no yeah because the election was supposed to be in May so we delayed the election by a year wow. you know and um you know people have mixed feelings about it politicians are politicians right they have friends and they have they have people that don't like them uh, i think he's a great symbol for the city um but i think you know he, he there's a lot of things that he hasn't done um that people will worry about what about you personally i'm going to give him some more time before i make my mind up got it Got it. How long is the mayoral term when the mayor serves? Four years, but it's going to be five years now. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. You know, uh, as you know, uh, everybody, uh, our elections are in full swing. Uh, we are literally weeks away uh, from nominating our new president, uh, name uh, uh, Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, who's going to make history because she was part brownie. Hey, uh, go girl brown power. What's up? Um, and I'm very excited about Kamala Harris. Um, but how much does the American politics uh, affects British politics? Massively, absolutely massively. Um, you know, there's a saying that America sneezes and the world catches a cold. That's correct. You know? And um, America has an outsized influence, especially on Britain. because we love to suck up to america so much and um so much of our foreign policy domestic policy is is kind of for i mean ever since trump was in power he has um you know deliberately um kept british friends that think like him so nigel farage i don't know if you know that name and others i do who nigel farage is yeah and he has boosted them you know he's used to use the podium to boost people that think like him of course people that are divisive people that are populist yep. and some people that are anti-immigrant you know right. borderline xenophobic you know maybe xenophobic so this is why um what happens in america is so important because you know uh, america has this outsized influence on on policy especially in britain and i keep a very very close eye on what's going on in america yeah. you know and um i i i hope that uh Well, I very much hope that things change in America. Yes. And I hope that uh, the new administration starts fixing some of the things that have happened. I mean, Mudassar, I can tell you as uh, on the ground. Uh 
the kind of devastation this administration has caused America across the globe, uh, across the globe, rather, um, when it comes to economy, uh, standing, just our reputation globally, um, just uh, across the board, has been devastating. And I almost feel, as an American, uh, and also somebody you know who's an immigrant, is that we almost needed this as Americans as a wake-up call because we've been taking our freedom for granted for years. For years, we've been taking our freedom for granted, and now uh, just the uh, election of uh, you know Trump and his uh, swamp that he brought with him has really kind of brought to surface the problems that have been hidden and by lurking in the dark for a very long time, systemic racism, uh, you know, uh, the anti-immigrant sentiment. I mean, the fact that we have uh, children at the border being put in cages, uh, separated from their parents, uh, dying at the hands of our government. Uh, I mean, these are, these are like crimes against humanity. This is, uh, this is going to be a huge scar on the American history uh, for the rest of our existence. Um, when I look at somebody like Nigel Farage or even your, your sitting, current sitting prime minister, uh, Boris, um, they also have the same mentality and same kind of sentiment as, as, as Trump does. Have they caused similar devastation in Britain the way Trump has to America? Oh, wow. Um, I, not to the same extent, but um, to a large extent, they have the, the biggest problem we have right now is the way Boris Johnson has handled this pandemic. You know, and um, as a person of minority background, I can tell you that this pandemic has disproportionately affected people from minority backgrounds. Now, part of that is genetic, and possibly, you know, but part of it is also structural. You know, part of it is also the fact that for decades, these areas had underinvested in the healthcare systems. Sure. Um, for, for, there are, you know, issues around, you know, the quality of healthcare services provided to these minorities. Also, minorities are in front-facing jobs. They're bus drivers. You know, they're working in restaurants. They're more likely to catch it. Some people don't understand English very well. So there's a problem of communicating. And so they live in overcrowded accommodation. Often they live in multi, you know, homes with lots of different people. So as a minority in the past year in the UK, we have been disproportionately affected by the COVID pandemic. Also, our government has handled the COVID pandemic terribly. Yeah. Terribly, 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 you know, and, you know, it's mass incompetence on an incredible scale. Yeah. Like, I mean, there is so much resentment at the way the government, and there's so much anger, you know, it is, un you know, I if we had an election tomorrow, this government would lose by a huge margin. Sure. You know? Now, there are some dog whistle, you know, there is some, you know, there are some people within the party that are racist. There are some people that are xenophobic. The Conservative Party as a party, has a lot of members that have been openly Islamophobic. This is a problem. And the Conservative Party is a ruling party. Wow. You know, and they, this has been well documented and whatever. So, you know, um, I, I don't think our prime minister is racist, but I think our prime minister definitely panders yeah. To, yeah. to some of these, these issues. Have you guys also had, um, we've had right-wing extremists. Just yesterday, the news came out these right-wing extremists were trying to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Wow. I mean, it's like, it's like fucking mini Russia over here. Ridiculous. Mm. When would you ever think in America there would ever be a conversation about a governor of a state 
every he's a she's a democratic uh you know uh, uh sorry uh governor oh and, and for and president well, uh, somebody who was considered for vp nomination as well right uh i don't know if she was considered for uh, not her she wasn't considered i uh, not oh. i don't know um but the fact that um uh, the fact that trump tweeted which was a dog whistle to his right wing you know nazis and uh, fascists that support him uh, to be like oh you know uh, liberate michigan liberate from what you are the fucking president of the united states who who ginormous mishandling of this pandemic has caused 210,000 dead americans what the hell are you talking about liberate michigan right and these are the kind of dog whistles that we have is that something similar to what Boris has been doing or even national no, not, not, not to that extent no i'm you, sorry you guys have a you have a you have a much crazier president you know uh we haven't had i mean look boris johnson has said some terrible things about you know muslim women in niqab and things like that you know and other bits and pieces that that some people have said that this is dog whistle um you know he's said some salacious stuff but not to that extent you know not to the extent liberate michigan and not to the extent trump has you know um boris johnson has has flirted with dangerous ideas you know and has said dog whistle things and and terrible things you know that we've been has been criticized publicly but you guys have a unique problem there you know and i i honestly am really worried about the future of america me you know, too ability you know and God forbid if he wins, you know, I can't imagine how that's going to go down. Even if he loses, I think there's a lot of crazy people out there, you know? Things that's are going to be settled for a while. We have, this president has unleashed a level of crazy, uh, the amount of racism and crazy uh, that has been permitted to be unleashed and has been accepted and, uh, you know, almost uh, cheered, not ch almost, it is absolutely cheered on by the president of the United States has really brought this country to a level of divisiveness that we've just never experienced before. You know, um, it just really worries me. So I, I wonder, you know, I mean, look, uh, from Duarte to Bolsonaro uh, to, you know, Nigel Farage and to Boris, I mean, just to Modi, I mean, it's just all these conservative assholes are like nationalist assholes are just going out of control. It's just out of control right now. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, what what happens to your like your PR company? Like, you have do you have conservative, uh, you know, people approaching you and they're like, hey, represent us. We want you to help us. Is that something a thing for you guys? And how do you guys handle something? We, um, do you know, I, I don't, I mean, depends what you mean, but um, we don't have, um, we, we, look, the reason I went into business for myself was because I wanted to choose the clients I have, you know, and we would never represent any xenophobic, you know, agenda or any racist agenda or even an agenda that is crippling people. You know, we work for Amnesty International. Amnesty yeah. International was a client. Yeah. You know? So we've, um, you know, we're very careful about who we work with. Um, do you know, there is a difference between PR and propaganda, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and we're not in the business of propaganda, you know, you know, that's a t totally different, um, kettle of fish, you know, it's not, yeah. it's, uh, you know, there's a different, different, um, you need yeah. banner for that kind of shit, you know? Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. 
Well, that's I want to go back a little bit briefly and talk about uh, why the madrasas uh, in, in the West and abroad have these crazy, power-hungry, bully imams. What is that mentality about? Is that literacy? Is that ignorance? Is that a need for power over vulnerable children? What is that about, Madasa? Well, I think first thing is important to note that not all imams are like that, right? Um, and and secondly, uh, all of the above is the answer. You know, um, you know, I um, unfortunately um, I had a terrible experience with an imam. You know, growing up, and um, I, I think that um, part of the problem is that we don't attract our most talented people into that profession. You know, so um, the pipeline is full of people, unfortunately, that failed at everything else often, you know, and then decided to go into this. So why do we not attract people? Because we don't pay them very well. So that the salaries are very poor. The conditions are very poor. Um, and, and also there is, um, you know, then, of course, you're going to get megalomaniacs, just like you had people in the church abusing kids. You know, you're going to get people that use the position to, to abuse people. So I think it's a variety of reasons, Mona, but I'm. Um, you know, I'm thankful that we're, you know, things are getting better, you know, yeah. slowly but surely things are getting better. And, you know, I soothe myself by reminding myself that, you know, um, religion, you know, religious people are not perfect. You know, religion is not perfect because it's man-made, you know, right. but God is true. You That's know? religion, Modaster. Did you say man-made? No, it has come from the heavens. What are you, you know, talking about? You know what I mean. It's interpreted by men, right? So because and because men add as a, act as adjudicators, there's room for corruption. Yes. Whenever you have, you know, whenever you have men, you have corruption. That's correct. That's why religion can be corrupt. I'm so glad you said men and not women. So I appreciate. Well, that. actually, on that, I think both sexes are corrupt. <laughs> so Listen, to be fair, Madasser, it has been predominantly men. It has, but that it has, but that doesn't mean to say that both aren't susceptible to corruption. No, but it, it but in the Abrahamic faith, it's predominantly men calling the shots, you know, yeah. saying you can do this and you can't do that. And the whole yeah. thing about 72 virgins, it wasn't a woman who came up with that, it was a dude. The dudes who came up with that. Um yeah, the whole thing about 72 virgins, that that, that always cracks me up. Um, but also, when you were saying that when you took a tour of uh, Pakistan with the RSPN NGO, did you, was there like a sense of, did you have security guards with you? Oh, or yeah. You safety? Like, what was that like? Yeah. Um, actually, I'll give you a story. Yeah. Uh, I had security. We had a armed, quite a lot of times we had armed convoys. I remember um, once I was um, in the Northwest Frontier province and Ooh. traveling from one part of it to another part of it. Mm. And, um, you know, on the way we got stopped by the army saying it's dangerous, but you can just about get through. So we went through, we, so it was a 12 hour drive. When we got on the other side, we learned they had to close the door behind them. They had to close the road because Taliban had invaded parts of the road that we'd just been on. So had we literally been there just a few hours earlier, God knows what would have happened. So yeah, parts of it, parts of Pakistan can be quite dangerous. And I've had some Interesting stories. And in Sindh, the problem is with bandits, you know, more with kind of armed, you know, bandits. Um, you know, we had, uh, we were always very careful. We always had police, police car behind us kind of thing. 
Um, and that's because, but also I did feel somewhat safe because this NGO has people everywhere, you know, like in every village, literally. So, you know, the network of the NGO and the reputation of the NGO was very, very good. And that also protected us, you know. And like I said, they don't get like threatened. Their workers, their volunteers, they don't come in harm. They do. They do. They do. They do get threatened. I mean, it happens. Um, yeah. You know, they've had uh, all sorts of harassment, but um, their work speaks for themselves. They have way more support than they have detractors. You know. Mm. You mean uh, supporters? You mean in like local villages and yeah, villages in government everywhere. Because yeah. they've gone in there and improved people's lives. And at the end of the day, beyond dogma, beyond religion, you know, if you can just improve someone's life, yes. you know, people don't forget that. Yeah. You know? that's so, right. so that's why they're still around. That's why they're thriving. And that's why they're still doing a great job. And, you know, um, uh, the woman that leads it is an incredible woman. Oh, wow. um, my friend Shandana is just a force of nature. Amazing. And she will stand any man down. From generals to colonels to whatever, you know, she's one of my heroes, and um, you know, she's led this organization in an incredible way. I am not shocked to hear that it's a woman. Uh, <laughs> not shocked, especially a Pakistani woman. Pakistani women have this level of badassery that um, I usually see that level of badassery with black women in America. Yeah. Um, but Pakistani women have this level of badassery that it's just like they're just out there, man. You're yeah. just like you're just out there doing stuff. Um, I'm not even shocked to hear that. Um, does she get death threats? Do the people try to come after her? Oh, she, um, mate, she has stories. You should get her on your podcast, mate. I, I love her. to get her on my podcast. She, um, um, unfortunately, um, I think three years ago she was in Kabul. Um, helping the Afghan government set up a similar program, and her building was attacked by the Taliban. Ooh. Yep, and she had to hide, and people were killed. This is not a joke. You know, she's been through a lot of shit. You know, but uh, she's an incredible person. You know. Oh, I got chills. Oh, sorry, I got yeah. chills when you said that. I'll send you a name. You can look her up. Yeah, I would love that. Um, so she, so it's not just the work is not only limited in Pakistan. They also go to Afghanistan and do work. Well, actually, RSPN's work was so successful that it was replicated in India. The Indian government invited RSPN to set up this rural support program network in India, and it's a separate program in India that was inspired by by the work in Pakistan and in Afghanistan. The Afghan government invited them to set up this work. So. Wow. It's a very, it's an incredible success story. I'm, I'm amazed more people don't know about it, you know, um, but you know, that's, uh, that's changing over time. That is just incredible. I mean, wow, I didn't even know about them until, you know, who I always thought was the biggest NGO was uh, Edithar Welfare. Sorry? Eddie no. Welfare? No, no, they have the largest ambulance network. Oh. But they're not the largest. I think it might even be in the world largest free ambulance network. But they're not the largest NGO. No, no, no. RSPN is. RSPN is, yeah. Wow, that is that is just. You know what I said. What always amazes me is that um, when governments invite NGOs to come and do set up programs, it's like you're the fucking government of this country. Why are you inviting NGOs when you have all the resources to help your country? You know what I'm saying? 
Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I understand. But, you know, governments are, if anything, governments are notoriously ineffective and bureaucratic, especially in Pakistan. The bureaucracy is insane. Insane bureaucracy. You can't get shit done, you know. So I'm not surprised that NGOs, even in this country, bureaucracies always, everywhere, seem to be inefficient, you know. I personally think the less government, the better. Less government, the better. But if, I mean, in Pakistan and, uh, you know, and in, uh, you know, countries like Pakistan, I mean, just the level of corruption. And I don't even know how they get stuff. Like, my mom is in Karachi right now. And she's like, Pakistan is worse now than it was when you left. Wow. It is worse now than when we the, the Pakistani currency has decreased in value than it was when I was a child. How could that be? You know, we need another podcast just to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I can come up with that podcast. I'm about that life. Everything Pakistan. Um, I recently had an amazing filmmaker, a British Pakistani filmmaker, Asim Abbasi. Do you know who he is? Um, I don't think I've come across Asim Abbasi. He lives in London. He, okay. in, he came up with this incredible show called Churails, which means witches. Oh, yeah, oh, was that him? That's him. Yeah. So is it just Jarrell's is on Netflix now, right? No, it's not on Netflix. It's on Z5. It's on ZTV Network. Um, but is it uh, set in Pakistan or set in India? It's set in Pakistan. It's all entirely shot in Pakistan. All Pakistani female actors. No way. I, re- I read about it. I've heard it's incredible. He's so amazing. He, Madasar, the level of badassery on this man is like next level. Okay. Asim Abbas. Asim Abbasi. He's um he was he's amazing. He's amazing. I had him on my podcast, and we talked about the kind of stuff that they're tackling in trails. Uh, you know, they're tackling misogyny and patriarchy and feminism and LGBTQ yeah. and uh, you know domestic violence, and they're just tackling so many things. And I just heard this week that Jordale has been uh, banned in Pakistan. They're trying to ban it. They banned it. They banned Jordale in, in Pakistan. I'm gonna. It's on Netflix in the UK. I'm gonna watch it. You should absolutely. Yeah. Watch the show. You know, I just looked him up very quickly. We don't have it. We don't have Jordan in America. I've just seen that he also made cake. Have you seen yes, cake? He did. No, I haven't seen cake. I want to see cake. Oh my god, cake is amazing. Yeah, I've I went to the premiere of cake. Huh? I went to the premiere of cake. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to the premiere. Yeah, wow. A friend of mine funded it, so yeah, the cake is an incredible movie. I loved it. Yeah. I heard great things about cake and I've been wanting to watch it. Um, but yeah, I mean, we don't, we don't have access to this content. So I asked Austin, I was like, Hey man, do you think like, is there like a Vimeo link or something you can send me that I can watch it? Cause I really want to watch it. But it kind of goes back to the conversation we were having about, you know, this is just a show, right? It's just one show we came up with Trudell's after so many years of Bullshit ass content that gets put on in Pakistan about you know the 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 sister in law is fighting and the mother in law and the daughter in law hates each other and that kind of catty bitchy bullshit rather than showing the rather than actually tackling the issues and the topics that are taking place in Pakistani society on a daily basis and then they come out and they ban this show right I mean to me it's just like how do we ever progress? How do we ever move forward? Well, I, yeah, I don't know. But this, I tell you how we move forward. We move forward by um, by supporting people like your friend, uh, Abbasi, 
and actually, you know, you know, making sure that we push these guys and support them in whatever way we can. Yeah. You see, I mean, he's, he's, he's an incredibly talented person. So and, um, you know, uh, I'd love for you to hook us up if he's in London. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to I'm gonna try to... I would love an intro with uh, Shandala. There we go. I would love... Done. Done. There we go. We'll tell okay. you that intro. I, I think we, we need to exa do exactly what we're doing right now, which is uplift each other and get the word out and try to help change this narrative because this is just enough, man. This is just ridiculous. Um, right. Are you planning on making a trip to Pakistan anytime soon or what's that? No, not to Pakistan. No, not for a long time. Not to Pakistan. I mean, given the way things are. Yeah. I'm not planning to go anywhere. I can't wait for a vaccine to come. In fact, my last ever trip was with LA. That's I had an amazing cool. time. That was lovely. It was lovely That's seeing cool. you too with us. Sir. I'm yeah. so glad you hit me up when you're here. Yeah. So I can't wait to start traveling in, but I don't think it's happening anytime soon. You know? Uh, if if a vaccine comes out uh, and it's approved by your equivalent of whatever your CDC is, we have our CDC here, uh, would you take it? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 You're about Absolutely. that. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I'm absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Is there a resistance among the minority communities in UK for taking vaccines? Is there like a stigma against it? What is that? Do you know what? Everybody's so fed up. I think people will take it. Um, um, you know, it's, um, you know, it's something that people are so fed up about that I think that people will just want any way out of it. That's my view. That's how I feel. Maybe it's a reflection of how I feel more than it is about how people feel, but mm. I can imagine that people will take it, you know? Well, that's right. You said that there are disproportionately amount of minority uh, uh, groups, and like including Pakistani communities in uh, England that have been uh, affected by the pandemic because of communication and because of, you know. Um, has has your prime minister been very adamant about social distancing, wearing a mask? What, has he been about this or not? Um, yeah, no, it, it's um, our prime minister again is much better than yours in this. You know, your your president in this regard. Mm -hmm. um, messaging was confused initially, but um, it's been quite consistent now, and quite you know, it's been it's been there now. You know, quite a bit, and people have really, really, really um, taken it on board. Also, we have um, a great devolved government. So on the devolved level, Scotland. You know, Wales, you know, have their own administrations. So they're obviously, you know, pushing the message a lot more as well. So, and and are minority communities practicing that or they're like, meh, it doesn't apply to us? No, no, the, the minority communities are practicing more than the other communities for sure. You know, oh, I yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Minority communities definitely are practicing a lot more. Got it. Got it, got it, got it. I mean, I mean, I mean, those, those are all very good things. Now, but sir, you also, I, I don't know. Can we talk about Concordia, or we can't? I mean, we can, yeah. Okay. Um, I think uh, what Concordia, uh, you invited me out to, uh, 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 you know, do a Concordia uh, event that you had put together. Uh, so, can you tell us a little bit more about Concordia and what the kind of objective is, or if we can even talk about it? Is it like five o'clock? Can we talk? No, no, of course, we can talk about it. Um, yeah, no, Concordia is a networking event uh, for Muslims in the West. Yeah, and uh, you know we do retreats um, and we do um, a lot of uh, other types of events. And yeah, it's it's good times. It's fun. How did you find it? Who are you? You invited me. I know I invited you, but how did you find the experience of being? Oh, there? oh man, I had such a great time. You know what I loved most about it, Madasir? 
Yeah. Exactly the thing that you were saying earlier about like the West kind of painting Muslims with this one big brush of being like, oh, all Muslims are these crazy conservative, friggin' Taliban loving assholes, you know? Yeah. But then you go to Concordia and you're like, okay, so there's super conservative Muslims and then there's like super liberal Muslims and they're all under the same roof, having a dialogue, having discussion, enjoying the same things, right? And um, some Muslims are just like, we're going to bed early and we are going to pray five times a day. And there are other Muslims are like, I'm going to go get a drink. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, yeah. and the fact that everybody can come together, uh, the fact that you had me come out uh, and perform, I, I have that recording of that side also. Uh, and um, everybody can come and kind of have this dialogue. Uh, to me, was really refreshing. It was really refreshing. It was really wonderful, and it was all, it was also very empowering to be like I'm not alone, right? I'm not alone in this. We are we are kind of we have similar minds. I hope you'll come back. I hope you'll come back. I am like I would love to come back. When is the, are you guys planning something in 2021 or what? Yeah, yeah, we're gonna do it in 2021. Now we're supposed to do it around about now. I think it was supposed to be next weekend, but um, yeah, but uh, we skipped a year. And it's going to be in 2021. It's going to be back in the same place you came to in Lisbon, actually. Um, and I um, loved Portugal. I yeah. I don't. I I've never stopped talking about my trip to Portugal. Yeah, Portugal's amazing. I love Portugal too. Yeah, we're in the same camp for that. Um, you know, I absolutely love Portugal, and um, Concordia is going to be there uh, again. You know, in in October, mm. and um, you know next year, and we're going to definitely do it again. We're probably going to do like a bunch of smaller dinners as well. Yeah. So yeah, we're going to get bring this. We also started a new product, actually, which is like a. So the Concordia is about energy. It's about networking. It's about you know meeting people, discussions. Yeah. We started something that is the opposite of that, which is about. It's called Sukun, and it's about mindfulness. It's about being with nature. Tell them what that means. Sakun is a very interesting word. It means peace in Arabic, Urdu, Hindi, Malay, um, and, and Persian. Like it's one of those words that cuts across. I think the origin of it might be Arabic. And um, we started this Sakun retreat last year, and it was incredible success. Wow. So this was like structured silence, structured meditation, mm. yoga, nature walks. You know, with a light touch of Islamic, but, you know, light, but it was just mind-blowing, you know? And uh, we're doing that in April in the UK. Okay. Um, and honestly, it's transformative for a lot of people. Wow. Wow. Transformative. Uh, and these are, uh, do people kind of pay for these retreat, retreats and how long are they? And well, yeah, people, people, people pay for them, um, you know, and this is how we keep it independent and agenda-free. You know, so we make it more about the participant. You don't, there's no, you know, there's no other agenda apart from personal enrichment. Um, and, you know, it's not, um, you know, it's, it's, it's about, um, you know, the, the, the experience that someone gets from, from coming there, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know Mudassar, that uh, it's dinner time for you. Yeah, it's uh, 8.35 and um, I've been Wait. smelling for the past hour. <laughs> what, what, what is your wife cooking? I I think she has cooked, it seems like a pasta and olives and there's all sorts of things there, you know? 
That sounds good. I thought you were going to be like, it's Friday, it's Friday, you know, it's Friday night. Uh, we're having, uh, you know, I don't know, some kind of uh, biryani or some delicious Pakistani food. We did that yesterday. We did that yesterday. <laughs> you know, we did that yesterday. I went to a place called Lahore Kebab House and I picked the hell out. You know? Oh, man, that sounds amazing. Wait, uh, do, you guys, do you guys have dine-ins? Uh, no, no, we took did takeaway, but we we do have dine-ins happening at the moment. Oh, with, you do? Takeaway, yeah. So I got karai gosht with tarka dal, oh. butter naans, oh. uh, shikh kebabs, amazing oh. shikh kebabs. Well, yeah. stop. It's only 12 o'clock. I haven't had lunch. Stop it. Stop it. This is best desi food since my childhood. Hands down. Yeah. Tayyabs. Ah, uh, yeah. So, thanks, so, so the two big... Uh, in London, Tayyib's and Lahore Kebab House are the two big rivals. Ooh. You have to try Lahore Kebab House too. I, yeah. Listen, next time I show up to London, Madassar, we're going to Lahore Kebab House. That's okay. Done. I'll take you to Lahore Kebab House. I am so down. Is that in East London or where is it? Oh, East London, of course. East yeah. London, of course. Yeah. I know. Listen, where in, in London are you? Uh, now um, I'm in East London. I'm still in East London. Yeah. Um, so before we wrap up, I have to tell you this very cool story. Two years ago, uh, I met this little uh, this young man who belongs to this uh, band, this little band called One Direction. Um, his name is Harry Styles. Um, he's just, <laughs> yeah. just like this kind of obscure little young man. I'm, right. at a, I'm at a studio meeting, and he's sitting next to me, and people are kind of freaking out around me. And right. I'm like, why are people freaking out? Like, yeah. I'm like, he's like this kid sitting next to me. And uh, I knew who he was, but I wasn't like, I didn't really listen to their music or anything like that. And yeah. I, was, I was like, hey, man, what's going on? He's like, what's up? That was my first time coming to London. And uh, and I was like, oh, I was like, uh, I'm going to London for the first time. And he was like, oh, that's so cool. He's like, where are you going to stay? And I was like, oh, I have like friends in Canary Wharf I'm going to be staying with. And then we're probably going to, you know, and stuff like that. He was like, yeah. oh, that's so cool. And uh, he's like, so you, I was like, he's like, do you know places you're going to visit? And I was like, oh, I don't know. I'm like trying to map them out and trying to write places to go and explore. He goes, hang on a second. Grabs a piece of paper and pen, starts writing in his very kind of gibberish handwriting and his hieroglyphic. And starts <laughs> writing all the places he likes to go in West London. And I, wow. I should go to. Wow. And I have, huh? No. Did you go to? No, oh. I was too distracted by tayyabs. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I'm going to be enjoying all this desi food in East London. I am not venturing out all the way to friggin' West it's London. Very good des desi food in Central London too, but yeah. Central London? But yeah, not yeah. in London, not in West London. No, West London doesn't have good desi food. No. Yeah, because it's very, it's very heavily white. Yeah, it's very heavily white. But um, Central London has some incredible desi food. Mm. Yeah, I'll wow. give you. A list. You can do my list next time, dude. I'm yeah. so. So I wanted to share that uh, corny little story of mine. What about Thank Harry? About Harry Styles, who is now a massive artist. Uh, he's, um, and he's a sweetheart on top of it. He's a good kid. Yeah. Um, Mudassar, uh, thank you very much for joining us. This was a really wonderful conversation. I definitely want to bring you on because I feel like I haven't covered so much of the other stuff, and I know you're starving, and so am I. Um, <laughs> But where can we follow you, Madhuster? Uh You can follow me on Twitter. Um, <laughs> Twitter, Twitter is—I'm not on anything else really. I mean, I'm on Facebook, but uh, Twitter is my main public platform. I'm not on Instagram. 
I'm not anything else. What's your handle? Uh, at M Madassa Ahmed. Well, because that's not complicated at all. <laughs> What's not complicated? I don't know if you could put it in, in whatever you post this on. You got it. I will do that. Madassa, we're definitely doing the intros. I will follow up with you later. Have a great dinner. Thank you so very much for Thank joining us. Lovely to see you. I enjoyed this very much. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Take yeah. care. Bye. That was a lovely and amazing Madassar Ahmed. I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. That I thoroughly always enjoy chatting with Madassar. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great weekend. And I will see you guys on Monday. Have a good night. If you haven't subscribed to my YouTube channel, please do. It would mean the world to me. Thank you, James, for tuning in as always. Have a good night. Stay safe.